Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts and Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, we're running with another crossover episode of Marijuana Today with hosts Ben Larson diving into the latest cannabis news with guests Andrew Livingston and Karen Ringingberg. We should be back more to the swing of things in the weeks ahead with publishing new Green Rush content as we have a lot of great interviews on the books. Enjoy. Welcome to episode 395 of Marijuana Today. It's good to be back. It's me, your host on the West Coast, Ben Larson, CEO of Vertosa and your favorite conscious capitalist. We're recording Friday, February 11th, 2021. Nope, 2022. <laughs> How are you doing, Marijuana Nation? Let's see. It's been about two months to the day, actually, that, that I last hosted. I was sitting here at the beginning of December with with Max Simon and Matt Walter, uh, really just kind of reflecting on the lackluster progress uh, we experienced in 2021, especially as it pertains to the federal legalization movement. Today, uh, I think there are some topics we need to check in on, again, at the federal level, uh, some a bit bit concerning uh, and and some hopefully a a bit hopeful. Um, a, A major federally owned electric utility, the the Tennessee uh, Valley Authority, TVA, threatened, uh, but then quickly retracted, uh, that it may cut off its services to areas where companies are cultivating or selling cannabis, regardless of state law. Here we go. Uh, (laughs) So counterbalancing the TVA news, you know, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced that he is aiming to formally file the Cannabis Administration Opportunity Act, the CAOA, uh, sometime in, big surprise here, April. Um, and there seems to be modified strategy emerging for the Safe Banking Act. Uh, we'll, we'll dive into that one. Finally, uh, we'll round up, round up the show uh, by doing a bit of a status check on the cannabis capital markets. We'll be talking about all of this and more as we get serious about cannabis business and politics. But I couldn't do it alone, so I'm joined today by two of the brightest minds in the industry and movement. First up, my longtime cannabis comrade, also hailing out of Oakland, California, the founder of Ringenberg Law, Kieran Ringenberg. What's up, man? Happy 2022. I don't think we've talked yet. Uh, we have not. And then the first month went by really fast. And I guess we're almost, we are halfway through February, practically. Hmm. How about that? And next up, a uh, longtime guest to the show, almost eight years now, uh, the walking cannabis industry encyclopedia. He's the director of economics and research for Vicente Cedarberg, Andrew Livingston. Andrew. Thanks, Ben. It's good to be back on the show. Awesome. 
Uh, gentlemen, uh, truly grateful for you both uh, rounding out your week with me here. Um, looking forward to your, frankly, deep knowledge on kind of more of this policy side that, that seems to be anchoring a lot of these conversations. So uh, let's hop right in. As reported by Kyle Yeager of Marijuana Moment, the Tennessee Valley Authority, the TVA, released a statement about its federal obligations days after the governor of Mississippi uh, signed a bill to legalize medical marijuana in the state. Uh, the TVA uh, is a main supplier of electricity to Mississippi's northern region. Uh, if you're not familiar with the geography in that area, um, they said that this is a complex and evolving issue. The one we've been following closely, uh, we respect the role of state government in making these decisions, but as a federal agency, TVA is required to comply with federal statutes. Um, but wait, breaking news, uh, after immense pressure from Capitol Hill and then realizing they probably didn't actually have the power to do so, um, you know, the TVA has walked back their statement. The TVA said in a clarifying statement less than a week later that uh, it has an obligation to serve our customers with safe, reliable, low-cost energy, and will continue to do so there will be no interruption in service because of this newly signed law. Okay, so uh, the TVA needs a new leadership and communications team first, um, but beyond that, uh, <laughs> does this mean we'll, we'll have to take stock of all federally owned services operating among states, of which I know none, uh, because I've just not really paid attention to that. And by we, I probably mean the good folks at Vicente Cedarburg and Ringenberg Law, who I usually call in these situations. Um, so Andrew, uh, let's start with you. Is this the latest chink in the cannabis armor or just a distraction in an overzealous agency? Um, okay, so it, it very well could be, you know, a certain member uh, that's a little overzealous. Um, you know, I'm not sure what the exact jurisdiction of Tennessee Valley Authority power generation and distribution out to um, local utilities is, you know, beyond obviously Tennessee, Northern Mississippi, potentially, I mean, like that, that whole area has got a lot of, you know, cannabis on the other side of the Mississippi, uh, when you're looking at Arkansas and Missouri as well. So unless everything stays east of the Mississippi, you know, the, that could have been impacted beforehand, but assuming it does, this issue is actually, um, come up in the past with a different sort of input necessary for cannabis cultivation. And I will say, I don't think anyone else probably remembers this. Well, maybe, uh, Kieran or Ben, you might. Uh, very few people probably remember this. But back in 2014, this, this little spark just flicked off in my head, and I was like, I should look this up. Yeah, back in 2014, the Bureau of Le Reclamation, which is a bureau within the U.S. Department of Interior, said that they weren't going to allow federal water to be used in Washington or Colorado to water cannabis plants. And I remember doing research and writing a memo on this. Now, what is that, eight years ago? Uh, well, this is almost, this, this article is, is cited May 20th, 2014. So I remember doing this almost eight years ago. And it turned out that actually the solution was a similar sort of thing that what I think is going to be happening with the TVA, which is, it's federal until the jurisdiction changes because you mingle it with other stuff, right? So what happened with the Bureau of Reclamation and these memos, you know, they put something out aggressive. They got pushback. Then it came out with the fact that almost all water is a mix of federal sources and, and state sources. 
And the federal government didn't have the ability to say you couldn't use this water when it was commingled. And so all of these growers down in southern Colorado, which were freaking out for you know two weeks, um, nothing actually happened. So thankfully, this wasn't two weeks. It seems like it was two days. But what it seems is happens is that, you know, Tennessee Valley Authority, which you guys may remember uh, from your high school days of learning about the you know FDR and the New Deal and the Civilian Conservation Corps, this is, was one of those big projects, you know, creates and generates a ton of electricity, but that electricity gets distributed through um, localized utilities and then to those end consumers. Now, I am not an expert in uh, energy law or regulation, not a lawyer. Uh, and there are probably some people that hopefully uh, are experts in that uh, on the cannabis side that that can uh, message into the show uh, after after this is published. But from my understanding on this, essentially, the jurisdiction of the TVA to determine what to allow or not allow essentially stops after that that energy is handed over to the local utility. And those local utilities are bound under state under state law. And so it's not like the TVA could say, hey, you know, this endpoint customer doesn't get power because like they don't have the the ability to do that or even the jurisdiction uh, and the authority. Wow. I, I thank you for validating my statement about you being a walking encyclopedia. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I thought it was funny, like Steve Cohen, the, the Democrat from from Tennessee, uh, took a little pot shot at the TVA and they were basically saying they need all the business they can get as their, their rates are way too high already. And they, and people want to leave the TVA. <laughs> so, um, you know, from a business uh, standpoint, this was a, a, a bad, bad move on their part. And, and from that side, from my understanding, I don't think it's like endpoint customers get energy directly from the Tennessee Valley authority. I think that is essentially local utilities shopping around for where to source their primary energy. That's right. That's right. Kieran, uh, any, any concerns pop up uh, for you from this one? Well, I mean, it's just another example of the same thing we play, see play out over and over again, which is we live in this weird netherworld where something is federally legal, but permitted and state legal. And so we have all these conflicts um, that arise. And there's no political will for the federal government to do anything. There's not. And, and so in this case, as soon as the TVA made its announcement, you had, you know, a ton of members of Congress and other important people, you know, weighing in saying, you can't do this. And, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, I believe Andrew's jurisdictional analysis is correct. But I also think just kind of being real politic about it, like the reality is, TVA is not going to do something that's going to get them in hot water with a bunch of people uh, in D.C. without a really good reason. And, you know, so that's just kind of where the political situation is at right now. Um, um, I will say I think it's possible you might see this come up as we get further down um, the legalization framework and the state's TVA serves, because there may be things that TVA needs to do to facilitate um, energy development for projects unique to cannabis. They don't, you know, they don't serve, uh, except for a handful, to my understanding, they don't serve direct consumers, they serve utilities, but there may need to be coordination development about where you deliver power. Like I know here in California, uh, PG&E, which is our dominant utility, is doing, spending tremendous amounts of money to reroute our power system, in part to serve uh, uh, high in energy intensive uses, cannabis uses. And so if you had to go to TVA and you're like, hey, we need a new substation or we need new power distribution facility here to meet this growing need in this area. And it was clear it was demanded from cannabis 
growers or whoever um, in the cannabis industry, like I could see that being an issue. Like we can't really do that. Like the demand that you're foreseeing is federally legal. So we can't devote our resources to plan around that. But, you know, looking at the areas TBA serves, I, I kind of doubt that there's going to be like any need for massive power upgrades to serve cannabis in those regions. Um, unlike here in Oakland, where that literally has happened. So uh, I, I think this is just one of another uh, uh, threats by somebody um, um, because of this federal state conflict and then a back down and, and then nothing happens, which is how it's been basically since the last half of the Obama administration. Yeah, Kieran, that's a really it's a really interesting analysis there. And I do want to point out that depending on, on what those cultivators need, there's there might be differences in essentially um, additional power generation versus the changing of um, like voltages or the power flow directions, which some which at least in Colorado, I know is more so happens with the local utility. You essentially have to talk to the local utility and you have to have them come in and, and add in some more infrastructure that essentially enables um, that, you know, whatever voltage you need, whatever amperage you need, but that's not necessarily new generation from, you know, the gas, you know, natural gas generation or the, um, you know, wind farms or solar or, 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 you know, coal in certain areas. So, um, that, you know, it, it, it might be difficult if those are like, if your local utility that you get stuff from is actually on the other side of the border. Right. So we, I don't know about that. You know, I imagine there's a lot of there's a lot some local utilities on the border that serve customers in other states. So these are just interesting things to think about. Another while we're talking about federal issues associated with power generation in the cannabis industry, want to throw in another odd factoid is that, you know, certain of these um, local power generation. So like if you're a big company and you want to add in your own, you know, combined heat and power, essentially your own generation. A lot of that is financed through certain federal tax credits because there, there are huge upfront costs that, you know, pay out dividends over the course of, you know, a 20 to 30 year life, you know, however it's sort of material it is, like a 20 year life cycle. And most of those are most of those are done with tax credits and other things like that. But because 280E not only prevents deductions, but also most, if not all, federal tax credits, a lot of kind of local power generation projects that may be viable because of how much energy a cannabis cultivation facility uses are not because they can't get that federal assistance. So another little uh, weird factoid that that comes in when, it, when we're dealing with energy generation and the conflict between state and federal law. Yeah. I think I, I I know what the answer is. It's on the tip of my tongue. Um, maybe it's <laughs> federal <a> legalization. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so good point. Good segue. Let, let's stick a pin in, in segment one. Uh, we'll kick it over to producer Shay uh, with a word from one of our sponsors who we're eternally grateful. Um, and then, yeah, we'll do just that. We'll jump into the CAOA and this whole safe sixth time around the horn. Uh, but first... Shay? We're very thankful to have the support of our friends over at Hedgerow Analysis. If your legal marijuana company needs location-specific data-centered projections to help you plan and grow your business, look no further than Hedgerow Analysis. They have all kinds of fancy computer models backed up by smart blocks of relevant data to help you work out things like where the best place to build your dispensary would be. Or maybe you need help citing a distribution network to ensure maximum profitability. 
availability for a delivery service. Whatever your location-based strategic problems are, it's likely that Hedgerow Analysis can help you solve them. Pop over to hedgerowanalysis.com to learn more about the company's capabilities and to get in touch. That's hedgerowanalysis.com. Welcome back, everyone. We're going to revisit a topic that Brian, Matt, and Alex were kicking around last week in episode 394, and we'll probably be kicking around for the remainder of the year. Uh, Senator Majority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer announced that he'd released the CAOA in April. Right around the time he was making said announcement, the House was passing the Safe Banking Act for the sixth time. As I always tell the team, persistence and patience will win the day. I'm really not trying to be the eternal pessimist on the show, uh, but I kind of assume at this point that we're aligned on thinking the CAOA is DOA, right? What do you guys think? Let's just pause there for a second before jumping into the rest. Like, uh, should we have our hopes up with the CAOA at all? Uh, Kieran, you want to go first? I'm, I'm happy to... to uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'll give you my, it's not really my expertise, but I'll give you my view, which is uh, it takes 60 votes to clear anything out of the Senate with a couple of, with some narrow exceptions. And I just cannot imagine the Republicans allowing to go through the Senate. I just don't see it. And unless there's a sea change, that's what it's going to be. That's probably true now. It's probably equally true after the next election, unless something really unexpected happens. Yeah. Uh, that is what I would say is the accurate assessment, which is the fact that cannabis does not even have 50 votes, does not have all Democrats. Um, and if you can't even get 50 votes, you can't pass something, let alone the filibuster, which means that standalone cannabis legislation is unlikely to pass. And I would say that standalone cannabis legislation um, is unlikely to pass ever. It would probably pass as part of some large omnibus criminal defense, uh, not criminal defense, uh, criminal justice uh, bill which uh, the timeline for that uh, is a question, right? You know, the, the largest criminal justice reform bill that passed, actually passed that, uh, during the Trump administration, did not, the First Step Act did not include cannabis, obviously. Um, but we'll see what that looks like. Like, obviously, you know, any large criminal justice bill that has cannabis legalization in it, cannabis is going to be the hot, doc, hot talking point as, you know, legalization has been uh, on people's minds for, you know, the last decade or so. Um, but... Will we see, you know, the Cannabis Administration Opportunity Act pass uh, before the Democrats potentially lose the Senate in November? Of course not. It's just not going to happen. So the next question is, is, okay, we got a slight door. It's got a slight opportunity. Democrats hold the presidency, uh, the House and the Senate for the first time since the beginning of the Obama administration. What are they going to do with it? Right. We've tried to pass certain things. We've tried to push certain things. Are we going to get anything on cannabis right now? The only thing that has been passed on cannabis um, 
as a very slight provision uh, in uh, the infrastructure bill associated with studying cannabis uh, as it pertains to uh you know driving and driving under the influence and there was kind of like a can we study cannabis that comes from sources outside of um you know the farm in in Mississippi and now i guess a few other federally licensed farms that are being produced but that was much if nothing um so this is really kind of where we're getting at uh when it comes to can we pass safe can we combine safe with something else um and, you know, are we going to be able to utilize this window of opportunity before Democrats potentially lose one or both houses? Okay, so it's not just me that's the pessimist. Maybe it's just realism. Um, let's spend the rest of our time focusing on safe banking then, if there's anything to talk about here. I mean, we know that Chuck Schumer is kind of being a stick in the mud and, and his team, you know, about passing anything that wasn't comprehensive. Um, but Ed Perlmutter, who, you know, is the ever persistent uh, uh, sponsor of this bill, um, has said that he is looking at revising some of the language to include some of these these equity components that may or may not appease Schumer and, you know, the rest of the team. Do we think there's a chance here? Like, is, is there something that could, like, push this through and this have be that one thing that the, the Democrats do achieve? Uh, while they have some power in the office. Um, okay. Is there something that, that could allow it to pass? So, you know, I think the question of, you know, can it or cannot, can it pass really comes down to Schumer and his decision of whether or not to let safe banking ask, uh, pat, sorry, safe banking pass as is. So, you know, can we add, Oh, I mean, can we afford not to? Well, the cannabis industry has been existing in its entire time without safe banking. No, I mean, oh, yeah, really? like, like Schumer, like it's just, it feels like, I don't know. I I know he's trying this to get the COA passed, but yeah, it's just, right. it like, seems like it would be cannabis, political suicide. It's not political suicide. You know, Democrats failing to pass legalization or any cannabis reform is the same old, same old. Right. Like we all we all think that like somehow we have large amounts of, you know, political capital that can be used to sway Chuck Schumer and, and have him do our bidding. No, no, we are we are one of many, many industry groups and interest groups that are knocking at his door for favors. And he doesn't include us in the top five or probably top ten. And his focus on cannabis legalization is social justice, not industry, right? He said that, you know, straight out in New York City. He doesn't want the big boys coming in, right? Now, the cannabis industry, when you look at it compared to other industries, has, you know, significantly less consolidation than pretty much anything else, even in some of the most consolidated markets like New York's current medical, right? Um, but the reality is, is that, you know, he's going to do what he wants. We can try to keep pushing him. Now, the question is, is will he acquiesce to give us something? I, I think it's possible. You know, um, Ed Perlmutter said he's confident that, you know, some that this will be this will be able to pass before, um, you know, he ends his term, which is, you know, he's not running against next November. I'm less confident about that. But, you know, do we have a pathway forward when it comes to 
you know, utilizing this this window of democratic control. I mean, we might, you know, there have been some other bills proposed that, you know, we could tack on social justice components to safe banking. The real question is, is does that make it harder to pass in the House? And can we do that in conference committee when, you know, with the American Competes Act, when um, the House passed, you know, the safe banking amendment as is, and the Senate doesn't have it at all? Just add a couple of points. So one is, and really, really it's echoing points Andrew made, but it'll just bring them out a little more maybe is. One is there's divisions within the Democrats about whether to do this clean or whether to do it with um, with social equity, social justice components. And so you have different points of view. Some people would be happy to have it go through as is. Some people would rather hold it up and try to get some progress on restorative justice issues. Um, um, you know, and that's a situation, I would say, where you don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good. But then again, I understand the reasonable minds may differ on that point. So you, you one, you have some internal dissension. And maybe Chuck Schumer's on the other side of that debate, right, which doesn't help because he's in the leadership role. The second is, you know, there's a video of, of Mitch McConnell mocking the Democrats for including marijuana banking in um, in this law. And he's like, what? And what are the Democrats focused on right now when we're trying to make the U.S.? you know, more competitive, getting people high. And now obviously it's not a persuasive message to me, but I bet you some of those senators who are in, you know, tough re-election campaigns in purplish states hear that and cringe and do not want to be associated with this. And all they need is a handful of people, just a handful to tell Chuck Schumer, do not do this. It's going to hurt me in my election. And even if they're wrong in that assessment, which I think they probably would be, but even if they even if they're wrong, if they if they say that, then that could doom it. So I I'm not optimistic. That's what I would say. Hmm. Guys are killing my dreams here. <laughs> I mean, it, it it doesn't mean we shouldn't keep pushing. It doesn't mean we shouldn't keep trying. Right. Like perseverance, as you said at the beginning of this, is what has allowed us to create the industry, right? Like we gave up the first time a state ballot initiative failed. We would have lost 30 years ago. We keep pushing. Yeah. Well, you know, Schumer has recently reiterated that at least he would be amenable to, to advancing the banking reform if certain amendments are added uh, to further promote equity. I, I, I think the one like, shining light is like when it comes to the president vice president you know for whatever it's worth again uh they're on the record at least on the campaign trail it's saying that if there's the one thing related to cannabis is that they were looking at releasing prisoners or or expunging records and uh, as, as far as i can count there's still forty thousand people still in jail that that need to be released uh, according to that statement so i think there's a low-hanging fruit about at least what's been said uh, could get maybe get this across the line, but I don't know. Not not now. Now I'm feeling uh, a little deflated here. <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, it's like a, as a pick me up, right? Um, here's the reality of the cannabis industry: all of it happens at the state level, right? You know, at, at the beginning of uh, the podcast, you, you know, you were talking about oh, the last time you were on. Uh, and moderating and, you know, and, and hosting, uh, you guys were talking about the anemic um, progress that we had at the federal level in 2021. But 2021 was not a bad year for the cannabis industry. 
2021 was a awesome year for the cannabis industry. And why is that? Well, that's because we passed in New York. We passed in Connecticut. We passed in Virginia. We passed in New Mexico. Um, you know, we were seeing the implementation of programs that were passed uh, earlier on, uh, you know, in the November prior with, with New Jersey, which is still, you know, taking some time, but, but going to happen, um, you know, with, uh, with Arizona, you know, now having, what is it like over first year, um, over half a billion dollars or so. 2021 was a great year for the cannabis industry. And the fact it's important to recognize that 100% of our progress continues in the same way that we've had our progress the year before. We keep passing laws at the state level. We keep improving the laws that we've passed at the state level. We keep providing patients and consumers with a safe supply of regulated product. And businesses and entrepreneurs are able to uh, make a living from it. And that's what we're going to continue to do in 2022 and 2023 and 2024 and beyond, regardless of whether or not we get safe banking or federal legalization. Well said, well said. I will say that in the coming years and this year in particular, uh, we need to take those legalized markets and, and make them so that people can actually indeed uh, make a living and survive and, and potentially thrive, uh, which I, I think we could really kind of dive into in, in our third segment. Um, so, you know, any traction with either of these bills, I, I guess to Andrew's point, to consider the, the the optimistic side is like the fact that we're having these conversations is uh, far and away an improvement than uh, prior years, right? The the fact that we get to discuss the federal legalization bills and federal banking bills, like these are just not conversations we had in, in the earlier days. Um, so any traction here uh, would would be a good sign, and and hopefully a sign that could um, you know prop up the the commercial industry uh, for a little bit longer. Uh, as I mentioned, there's a, a lot of challenges that businesses are facing. Um, you know, the, there's talks of a, a cannabis recession and cash constraints. And so we'll dive all of that uh, in, in our third segment. Uh, but first, a word from Shay and one of our amazing sponsors uh, that keeps us in your ears every week. Shay? This week, we're glad to have the support of our friends over at The Atlantic Farms of Portland, Maine, which is known around town for their unique medical marijuana dispensary slash gas station, where you can fuel up on all the things you need to get down life's road. Pop over to theatlanticfarms.com today to browse their extensive menu of top-notch Maine marijuana products, all available at hugely affordable prices. That's theatlanticfarms.com. If you do stop in, tell them I said hello. Final segment. 
As reported by Alan Brockstein at New Cannabis Ventures, the ancillary cannabis index, an index created by New Cannabis Ventures, uh, has significantly outpaced the overall market since its launch. But in January, it fell substantially, uh, more than the New Cannabis Ventures Global Cannabis Stock Index, so declining 16.5% compared to 12, 12.9%. Uh, the index has declined 46.3% since its introduction at the end of March 2021, uh, compared to the decline of 54.2% in the global cannabis stock index. Uh, none of these numbers are great, uh, but probably not necessarily a surprise to many of our listeners based on the kind of corrections that we've been living through. Is this just the natural expansion and compression of valuations in the industry, or do we have a bigger problem on our hands? And I'm going to leave the witnesses a little bit here. Um, I'm going to start with probably the more jaded of our two guests, Kieran, uh, who resides in California with me, um, works with a lot of California operators, is uh, seeing firsthand some of the challenges that you know the companies that make up this industry are experiencing. So, so Kieran, what are your thoughts here? Uh, is this just what to be expected or, or is there an underlying narrative that we really need to pay attention to? Well, I mean, I'll give you my view on what's happening in the California market. And, and I'm not sure how it relates to the, the, the securities pricing that you're referring to exactly, but maybe we can tease that out. And so what I'm seeing, which, you know, I don't think there's any, there's no secret. I'm not really revealing anything new here. Uh, this is widely reported is the, you know, the wholesale price for cultivated cannabis in California has cratered, you know, over the last eight to 10 months. Um, it's probably not expected to recover. There's some discussion about that, but might recover a little bit, but probably not never to what it was. Um, and as a result, there's a lot of people whose business used to be profitable that is now not, and they just can't continue. So, you know, last season you saw people with outdoor crops declining to harvest and process them because it wasn't worth the money to do so. Um, I know, you know, firsthand, a lot of the smaller outdoor growers are just not going to replant this year because it's not worth it at these, you know, current and expected market prices. Um, you know, if you're, you know, one of the many folks in Humboldt or Mendocino County who had a five or 10,000 foot approved, you know, outdoor grow or maybe lighted up, you know, it's not at all clear that that is a real viable business going forward. And if you are really just producing commodity, it's pretty clear it's not a viable business going forward. You know, some people might have a brand or might have unique, something really unique and differentiated to offer. But if you don't, if you're just producing a commodity product and you don't have the ability to compete with the large scale operators, you don't have a business. And so, you know, you're, you have seen and you will see a bunch of people go out of business. And then that trickles through because you have, you know, other service providers in the industry you know, distributors, processors, manufacturers who relied on relationships with, with those folks. And, you know, this is impacting them too. I actually had a client tell me they were visiting uh, some of the local grocery stores and, and up in Humboldt and they relayed, they thought actually two um, of the longstanding grocery stores up there were likely to go out of business this year because no one was buying because they weren't planning on replanting. And that's you know both the the what you know the legal regulated market and the the remnants of the un, of the so-called traditional market, the illicit market in California. That's all impacted. But you know, market prices are the market prices, um, um, and so I, I I think that's what's happening, and I I think that does carry over into these ancillary companies because if there's fewer people buying picks and shovels, and the price of picks and shovels goes down, and that means it's less profitable to buy to sell picks and shovels. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of discussion about why is this happening? 
what can we do about it? How do we fix this? And, you know, fundamentally, it comes down to supply and demand. It's like we're producing more than the market can can profitably acquire. And, you know, that means there's going to have to be either a dramatic increase in demand, which is pretty unlikely, if you ask me, or a reduction in supply um, um, so that people can produce at a level that supports their business. Well, supply, demand, and regulations, right? Because, I mean, even with proper supply and proper demand, regulations could be written in a way where, I guess, it removes the demand because it just moves to a different market, right? The illicit market. And I I think that's the huge challenge that we're facing in California right now. It's like I've, I've been seeing, you know, postings on social media about where the cost, the demand has driven the cost of flour and where taxes like keep that that cost and the proportion of that 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 value right yeah i mean it's definitely true the tax burden is very high um and that is a factor in this because you, you one of the cost of production is meaning your tax obligations um, um and also the regulatory burden is high that's correct is the regulations in california are difficult to comply with and expensive uh, especially for smaller operators relative because it's harder for them they don't have this the scale to deal with them efficiently. Um, um, that said, I still believe it's the case. If you drove the, the cannabis tax level to zero and you streamlined the regulations significantly, I still think the small growers are probably out of business because they still can't grow profitably. Um, you know, the big guys have to pay taxes too, and they have to comply with regulations. And it's even some, in some ways it's harder for the large guys because there's more complications when you have a larger scale business on the regulatory system in California. Um, and, you know, And I do think those need to be addressed and we could do better on this. And for example, most of the local jurisdictions that impose large taxes have been reducing those in California in order to uh, allow their local industries to survive and contribute to the tax base. Um, um, And so that's been really helpful. But at the end of the day, it's not going to solve the problem by itself. You know, there, there, there needs to be a supply demand imbalance. Now, if we get exports to other states, that would be a huge sea change. But I don't see that happening in the near term. So I think we're going to have to ride out this crash, which, hey, this happened in Oregon too. It's, this is kind of the thing that happens when you have open licensing in a state like we do. Um, I don't see any alternative other than to ride this out. A bunch of people are going to go under. Some people are going to survive. And I will say, I saw one point made, which I agree with strongly, which is the result of this very competitive market is going to mean that when we do have federal legalization, or at least some kind of authorized interstate transport and sale, the operators that have survived through this, that have learned how to stay competitive, offer innovative products, produce inexpensively, they're going to do well in the national market. And presumably, you're going to eat the lunch from people who have been protected by low license states without any competition. So that's the upside. If you can make it through this, you're going to be well positioned in the long run, but it's going to be a rocky few years before we get there, in my estimation. Yeah. And and I mean, California is one example. We had a little bit of a head start and are still dealing with the troubles. But I I think we're starting to see some indicators even in like Michigan and Illinois, which are more newly regulated states uh, that are feeling the price compression already. Right. And um, to your point, you know, the tie in to to the to the public markets is, you know, a lot of those stocks are ancillary to to the operators. And if the operators go away, you know, they're losing customers and they're losing revenue. Uh, so I think about, you know, they're, uh, having having looked at a lot of the software opportunities, for instance, like in the space, right? Like, you know, C to sale, like compliance platforms and, and 
distribution platforms, that kind of stuff. It's like, you work a lot, you, you spend a lot of money acquiring those customers. Like everyone tracks how much they're spending to acquire a customer. And if those customers are churning perpetually, that's going to make it really hard for you to run those businesses as well. Um, so, you know, my concern is that this uh, refinement process, you know, getting people to operate more efficiently, it's that it just goes on for too long. And we just like constantly churn people out. And then, you know, the, the result on kind of, um, you know, the, the investors in the space, you lose a lot of like LP confidence, you know, for the people putting money into the venture funds, the venture funds start running out of money because they're not, you know, getting the LP money. And, and so like, you know, the, the, the runway for these smaller companies, the ones that are venture backed, uh, tend to shorten. <laughs> um, Andrew, what, what, what are your thoughts, uh, on what's going on? Yeah. So, you know, I think what Kieran was saying is, is, is really interesting when it comes to a combination of supply and demand, the fact that we have, right? Like, so it's important to take a, you know, go back 30 years or so before any of these legal and regulated markets, right? By and large, almost all the cannabis in the United States uh, came in from, you know, I'll call it like three and a half, like three sources, which is, you know, Northern California and Southern Oregon, Mexico, and then a smattering of, you know, home grows, small grows around the, around the country, right? The cannabis now is, you know, new farms being, you know, pop up across all of America, right? There's still illegal grows in Southern Oregon and Northern California. By and large, uh, Mexican brickweed's not really going much of anywhere in the United States as much as it used to be. Um, and that's just because, you know, the taste and, uh, preferences of the people that used to obtain that, you know, are, are by and large, like there's cheap cannabis you can get from the illicit market coming, you know, from within the United States. And, you know, there's still a lot of home grow around and little, little pop-up spots, you know, maybe smaller than they used to be and things like that. But what we are seeing is in the United States is significantly more cannabis is being grown than ever before. And while cannabis demand may be higher than it is 30 years ago, I don't think that on a per capita basis, um, the increase in demand is anywhere near what it is, um, what, what it was, uh, you know, when, when compared to the amount of demand and supply. Further than that, it's also important to recognize that like 30 years ago, smoking vape pens and a lot of the concentrate market was not nearly as big. And so now we're actually taking advantage of more of the trim and the other biomass produced around flour to satisfy cannabis demand in a way that that wasn't as much uh, in in the past. So so that is important to recognize that you know we're dealing with um, with a difficulty between supply and demand now and and you know Oregon obviously dealt with that a handful of years ago. Colorado is now going through what's likely to be its second price crash or, or price decline in wholesale cannabis value. Uh, but this is going to be really bad once federal legalization happens, because then all of a sudden you have all of this built infrastructure that may be oversupplying. You know, this is an issue in Canada. And that's why, you know, if you look at some of these, the big publicly traded Canadian um, licensed producers, you know, ton of them are, are talking about, OK, we're closing this cultivation facility. We're buying this op smaller operator or, you know, Canopy, we're, we're closing uh, this greenhouse in this area. And that's because, you know, you overproduce and you, you just doesn't make sense to, to keep those assets around. 
So this is something that I think the cannabis industry is going to have to figure out how to deal with, right? You know, it's a combination of consolidation, but it's also right-sizing capacity. It's oftentimes what they talk about. So I, I think that is, that's key to look at. Now, the other thing I think that Kieran said is really interesting is, is how competitive pressures um, build the strength of local operators, right? And this is like why American entrepreneurialism is generally like better than it is in a lot of other countries. And that's because, you know, we've got a more competitive marketplace, um, which drives innovation, uh, which drives uh, business efficiencies. Um, and this is why, like, if you compare, you know, like U.S. mining companies to uh, or, or oil extraction companies to Russian oil extraction companies, you know, they suck. And it's because their markets are not nearly fair or free or competitive in any of the ways that in the United States is, right? So let's take a similar example to, you know, look at uh, operators on the West Coast versus the East Coast, right? Who's producing at a more efficient basis, uh, you know, when you're dealing with competitive markets or not as competitive markets. And I think that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of merit to this, right? You know, I, I, I don't remember who said it, but I remember reading uh, somewhere in my morning emails a, a week or so ago, um, which is, you know, it's like what happens if uh, some of the MSOs have to sell cannabis at the price that operators are doing so in Oregon? The answer is they all go out of business, right? So, you know, how does that, how do those dynamics work? And, and they're going to have to kind of gain those efficiencies over time which is why I, I recommend to, you know, multi-state operators that even if it, it doesn't look like it's beneficial, you should tip your toes into very competitive markets so you understand how fast the water rushes because eventually you're going to have to swim in it. Um, and so that's kind of an important thing to think about. But when it comes to California, the dynamic is also at play, which is, okay, post-federal legalization, You've got other competitive markets, whether or not that's Oregon or Colorado or Washington or what will be, you know, Oklahoma, even to some degree, Arizona, while they do have a limited number of licenses, they still have, you know, quite a number. And so are the operational difficulties that, you know, Kieran was talking about and, and Ben that you were talking about that increase just the straight operational costs for small and big operators, regardless of how efficient you are, is it going to be viable for a Missouri retailer to buy cannabis from California versus Oregon. And, you know, this is something that uh, I was recently gave a talk to a, a Colorado Marijuana Enforcement Division working group on a combination of tax and regulatory policy with an eye towards future federal legalization and competition. And I think this is one of the places where California really needs to take a step back. And I think the industry has, has been pushing them to do this and say, okay, how do we make sure that we are competitive with our neighbors in the long run? That's both with regards to tax rates, tax structures. You know, does it make sense to have a wholesale cannabis tax when Oregon and Washington don't? And it might be cheaper for someone to source product from those places. And what does it mean as far as, you know, your distribution system and the onerous complications that occur, uh, uh, you know, down and through the supply chain? Because even if you're really efficient at operating in California, it may just be that post-federal legalization when it comes to who's shipping cannabis where – the base price of cannabis is cheaper in Oregon. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, you, you mentioned cross-state commerce, even with federal legalization, I imagine that that's going to be the toughest nut to crack. 
especially, you know, I, I'm having a hard time, you know, seeing the path forward when we're talking about the inevitability of scale and, and big business, right? And, you know, we're, we're trying so hard to protect the small operators and the equity operators, right? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, how, how does that work at any level of scale? And are we just delaying the inevitability and to, to what end, right? Um, you know, not to say I'm not in favor of protecting the small business. I'm not saying that. I'm just, uh, it becomes like, it's like, you know, what are we trying to protect in the end? Is it, is it those exit opportunities? So at least that there's some form of, um, you know, at least a, a single float or two into, you know, generational wealth or, or, or wh whatever it is. Um, it's hard to imagine any form of scale, not creating this, this steamrolling effect. Um, well, I mean, let's take a step back and look at it in alcohol, right? Because, um, you know, I was reading uh, Shalene Title's um, recent paper on, you know, protecting uh, small businesses, you know, some interesting components. But, she, you know, she was pointing out, okay, you know, the we should have a, a three-tier system or at least, you know, a, a prohibition on vertical integration to prevent um, consolidation. Well, if you look at it in the alcohol industry, right, obviously they have a prohibition on vertical integration um, for, you know, the, for companies – uh, by and large, not not for all of them, which I will talk about. Um, and alcohol is, you know, significantly concentrated, although actually there are more uh, breweries now in America than there ever were even before Prohibition. Um, but still something like 70% of the market is controlled by, you know, um, what is it, Miller, Coors, uh, Molson, and then, uh, you know, InBev, Anheuser-Busch, right? But where do we see the most innovation and the most kind of interesting things happening in the beer industry? And that is with microbrews and brew pubs, right? Which are pretty much almost all vertically integrated, right? They're brewing their own beer on site. They're selling to people on site. It's small little things. Sure, they might ship a little bit here and there externally. But by and large, these aren't companies that are building generational wealth. But these are companies that are you know, creating jobs, uh, creating innovation, um, and creating opportunities and a good life. And so the question is, is, is that going to be the case in cannabis? And I can imagine it is. We have a handful of multi-state operators, hopefully less consolidated, consolidated than, um, than with alcohol. Um, and they are shipping to, you know, retail stores across the country. But hopefully we have the equivalent of small um, smoke pubs or whatever, you know, little uh, coffee shops that are growing on site and producing on site or maybe extracting and, and that we have some of that kind of localized dynamic. And there's enough opportunity that if you want to go out and consume cannabis, you can do so at a small local store. But, you know, if you go on a business trip across the country, you recognize a few brands when you, you know, go into a cannabis retail store. Mm -hmm. You 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 remind me of a, a discussion I had a while back when I was running the incubator, right? We were always trying to map like how other emerging markets were created, both in alcohol and, and coffee, for instance. You know, you have that, of course, it starts with craft because everything starts small. And then you go into this hyperscale mode where, you know, the costs are being driven down. It's like exposure and access. And and those in both of those cases kind of those scaled brands like dominated the markets for 40 or 50 years, right? Yeah. 
and then the craft like came back and reemerged and became its own culture. And, and so like, to your point, the big question is like, do we have to go through a 30 or 40 year period where cannabis is driving towards this, these scaled, like ubiquitous products before there's like a significant desire to rebirth, you know, craft cannabis. And I think that's scary for a lot of uh, the, the existing operators in the space right now to even fathom that that might be a, a reality, um, you know, whether we want it or not, because we know that laws aren't great at stopping capitalism. In my perspective on that is, I don't think, for example, in coffee, I don't think it was a cause and effect where you needed consolidation and standardization to get back to craft. I think that was other societal changes looping back. I think the same thing is in beer. We've been through that as a society. We're ready as a culture for uh, stuff that values uniqueness and the contributions of an individual craftsperson. Um, I think we're ready for that. I don't think we need to go through that in cannabis. But I do believe that if you're a small producer, the only way you'll be able to survive is if you're producing something that's different and unique. The idea that a small producer can produce a commodity profitably doesn't make any sense in the long run. And, and I feel like that's the lesson a lot of people are learning the hard way right now is mm-hmm. they haven't been focused on trying to do something unique and something differentiated they just been focused on trying to make a business work because, you know, hey, look, 10 years ago in cannabis, it didn't really matter. You know, it's like whatever it is, you could get it sold, you get a good price, you make money. Nowadays, that's just that formula doesn't work. You got to have something unique, something differentiated. And, and um, you know, that's where I think the competitive markets, which I would include Oregon in that, that's where they're going to come out ahead um, is because the, the producers in those markets are going to have experience trying competing hard uh, for consumers who have a lot of choices. So I think when we get to a national market, that's a, a national legal market, um, um, the folks who have had to had to learn that lesson um, in a really competitive market will will have some advantage. Scale, diff, you know, is also a huge advantage. It's something different. But I, hopefully, there's room for craft producers. Um, but that doesn't just mean small. It means with crafts with crafts with I want to say craftsmanship, but that's gender. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking for another word. But with with uh, crafting sensibility. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, a lot of my lens is often from kind of the venture scalable, you know, type of companies, right. Which uh, has, has gotten a lot of the, the press over the years, whether it's, whether it's venture scalable or publicly traded, you know, MSOs or, or what have you. And um, you know, perhaps you guys are right. Maybe there's a lot of room uh, for businesses that differentiate, uh, create a nice, lifestyle for the owners and or creates jobs in the local community um but isn't driving you know and trying to attract venture capital dollars and i think that i think actually a lot of people need to learn that it's like there's a perfectly good place for businesses that that can operate with good uh you know business fundamentals and yeah maybe you don't have access to loans so that they kind of uh you know cuts out a lot of options for for people but it's it's just a kind of realigning expectations and and same with like the investors that were planning on building investment portfolios out of a bunch of brands that were going to like go to the moon and you know get sold to pepsi and all that kind of stuff maybe maybe that's a ways off maybe we should, you know just uh relax a little bit on on those expectations and then yeah i, I unfortunately the publicly traded companies the 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 ones with a lot of capital that are 
you know, really exposed to all these different markets, they're going to have to constantly, constantly be refining their business uh, because they're the most exposed to those, those kind of big fluctuations in the, the market pricing. Hmm. So if I can put the pressure on you guys, uh, this quote unquote recession that people have been kind of talking about for the last six months, um, you know, some people have been saying crash. I kind of feel like in some cases it's been a correction, but I am concerned about these, like these conversations locally, especially in California, just surrounded by it all the time. But like, you know, financially, how, how do you guys think we, we look for, you know, as we progress into 2022, like, is, are we kind of like at a floor and things are going to start climbing back up? Are we highly dependent on the, the any federal, federal movement, like just broadly, whatever direction you want to take it from, you know, how are we feeling from a fiscal perspective? Andrew? Yeah, um, I think a lot of that depends upon what market you're in, right? So if you're a grower in California or Colorado or even potentially in Michigan, um, you know, as, as prices are shifting and potentially shifting faster than you thought, um, that's you're gonna that's gonna be a real difficulty, right? If you're in the industry and you are a larger operator in Arizona, right, 2022 looks awesome. Um, you know, if you are um, a business in Illinois, the question for you is is you know not what is not really like what's going to be happening with you know prices on the West Coast and supply and demand. It's, you know, administrative litigation and lawsuits associated with licensing, right? So I, I, what I would say is that because we don't have a national cannabis industry, the problems that we face still by and large are state-specific, uh, dealing with those intricacies of those unique markets, right? The issues that are in place in Colorado, while similar, are different than those that are in place in California, right? You guys have a lot more of an issue with regards to what's going to happen with everyone who has provisional licenses and, you know, compliance with state environmental laws. In Colorado, it's more so, okay, what do we do with the fact that prices are likely falling again? Um, you know, they would have fell in 2021, except for we still had, you know, a bump from... COVID demand. Um, and how can we ensure that, you know, I think Ben, you said it well, we're not churning and burning entrepreneurs, right? Like that's a cost. Um, unlike other agricultural industries that have been boom and bust, you know, we don't have crop insurance in the same way. We don't have price supports uh, for when those prices do fall. Um, you know, actually, Oregon's been the first to kind of really look at this with regards to uh, relief funds that they kind of broadly center around the pandemic, but for cannabis businesses, but I think those are really more, more so focused on the retail side than, than on the growth side. But these are important things to think about, right? Like as we modernize ourselves, um, how do we deal with this specific issues that are nuanced to our, um, our state market? And, and that's where, um, you know, I think the questions get more complicated um, because the difficulties that operators in Vermont will face are going to be different than the issues that operators in New Mexico will face. And we need to tailor specific solutions to those specific problems. Yeah, absolutely. Karen, 
Any closing remarks here? I agree with that, but I will say there is a national market. It's just not the legal one. And it interfaces with yeah. every legal market at some level. If you have two buckets next to each other and they have different levels of water and you connect them even in the smallest way, in the long run, they end up at the same level. And so I think that the national and local cannabis markets work in the same way. Part of the reason there's a crash in California in the prices is because there's so much production in other states. And so the just the national level of supply and the national level of demand are changing, not just within the state. Um, because although the vast majority of legal producers stay within the system, there's enough leakage that the markets have a you know cross current. Mm. And um, and I, you know, I don't have firsthand knowledge about Colorado, but I'm I'm pretty sure the same is true. So the um, the uh, so I do think the long term trend is um, um, downward on prices as more and more states come online, more and more production in different places, places like Oklahoma, massive production, way more than that state will ever consume. You know, like how does that happen, and what impact does that have? I, I think there is a national trend, but I certainly don't disagree with Andrew at all that. There's huge issues that the licensed producers in each state have to deal with that are particular to their circumstances. Um, um, but I think if you look at the industry writ large, um, you have to take account of the long-term trend of where this is headed, um, and that's more competition, lower prices, um, um, and commoditization of the core products. All right. All right. Well, there you go. Um, a lot of work to be done this year. Uh, individually, collectively, as a group, um, but but we're we're in it together, and we've been doing it. So what's another <laughs> what's another year of, of unpredictability? Um, that wraps up our third and final segment. We're going to take one more quick break, and when we return, finishing moves. Welcome back, folks. Now it's time for my favorite part of the show, Finishing Moves. Finishing Moves. Finishing Moves is the part of our show where our guests get to talk about anything that strikes their fancy, cannabis or otherwise. So, Andrew, let's start with you. What's your finishing move? Yeah, so I want to hark it back a little bit uh, to a... Uh, article I read on Wednesday from Marijuana Moment that was talking about New York regulators cracking down on businesses gifting as part of you know the state preparing for uh, adult use sales. Obviously, this has been uh, an issue in, in many states. I, I'm pretty sure podcast has, has covered it with regards to some of this happening in New Jersey. 
Um, it's been going on in D.C. for quite a while as they've been dealing with a, you know, a lingering gray market. And, well, it used to happen quite a lot in California, uh, probably still does. But this is tricky, particularly as we are looking to thread the needle when it comes to uh, ending mass incarceration, not arresting people for nonviolent cannabis offenses, and ensuring that we have um, the sort of entrepreneurs we want to attract as part of the social equity program. You know, and as I wrote to some of my colleagues that morning, you know, it's like, does New York City have the appetite for future cannabis enforcement if the unlicensed entrepreneurs are the same type of individuals that they are otherwise trying to attract as part of their social equity programs, right? And in some ways, it's easy to go after some of these like businesses that are gifting, right? Because they may like have an actual storefront and they're like selling t-shirts and they have a business license, but they're also engaging in illicit activity. The much harder thing is to deal with the bike messengers and the fact that in New York City, you can buy cannabis um, through a text message and Venmo and have it brought to your house with an assortment that's not just flour, but also concentrates vape pens and edibles from, you know, either the illicit market or from, you know, a post-sale diversion uh, on the legal market in other states. And so this is, um, this is a difficult thing that, you know, we'll try to thread the needle on. But particularly when it comes to New York City, uh, unless the five boroughs are able to license hundreds of retailers, it's going to be difficult to compete with the ease and access of what is a very competitive illicit market. Mm. Mm -hmm. I like that. Bike messaging uh, cannabis. Uh, that sounds nice. I'm not an East Coaster, so I don't know. <laughs> All right. Kieran, what well, do you got? I'm going to break the rules slightly and have two comments. When I went to law school in New York City, and I assure you the bike messenger with delivering cannabis to consumers is nothing new. It's been going on, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's been going on a long time. Uh, but the, uh, the my finishing move is I want to tip my hat to those wily, bold, and courageous entrepreneurs who are, even today, looking at the mess that is the California cannabis market, walking into disastrous businesses that are failing, picking up the pieces and trying to get them sorted out because that's kind of what's happening right now. It's actually kind of exciting. I really am enjoying working on those aspects of like, hey, here's seven failed businesses. Let's put them all together and make something that really works. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I am very impressed by the individuals that are um, confident and skilled enough to try to pull that off. Tip my hat. Godspeed. Uh, it's not, not an easy task. Um, well, uh, kind of piggybacking on that and some of the things we're talking about, uh, less cannabis related, but certainly maybe some advice for those running businesses. Um, I wanted to actually just shout out to one of my favorite authors, uh, in the, in the business world. He's also a Bay area resident. Uh, it's Patrick Lencioni. Uh, if you run a business and you haven't read one of his books, uh, I, I, I question, why? <laughs> I'll just leave it there. Um, so, so uh, Lencioni's books are, are super approachable. They're usually like built like around a, a fable. So you're like reading through a story and it just makes it really easy to absorb. They're quick reads. Uh, I've read two in the last week. Um, so uh, certainly easier than some of the other business books that are out there. Um, and yeah, they're just, it, it's just very clear, concise uh, advice on how to run a, a functioning business, right? Uh, the five dysfunctions of a team uh, is one that I've read with my entire uh, management team. And it just talks about how to be a better team. 
they have one specifically for CEOs. Uh, the two I read over the last couple uh, weeks, one uh, was the motive, um, like why do we choose to be leaders? Uh, is it, um, and just like to cut to the chase, it's, it's more about creating an impact and, and bringing those along that you are leading. Um, so thinking about uh, the employees and the customers that you're serving and, and knowing that that's part of the job. It's not about the, the title or the acclaims. And then uh, the other one that I really loved, uh, which I've implemented a bunch of uh, in my company is, is death by meeting. And it's not necessarily saying that meetings are bad, but that leaders are bad meeting leaders. <laughs> um, so if you're a leader of a company and you're loathing or avoiding meetings, you're actually abdicating uh, the functions of your job. Um, so find out ways to have more effective meetings and fill the time and make sure that people look forward to the conversations that you're having. Otherwise, it's, it's your fault. Um, that's the job of a leader. Anyways, uh, Patrick Lencioni has a pretty robust uh, uh, collection uh, that he's published, I think 11 books now. Um, and like I said, they're easy, easy to read. So they actually make you feel accomplished when you pile them up on your nightstand. And that's uh, my finishing move this week. Uh, thank you so much to our guests this week, uh, Karen Ringenberg, Ringenberg Law, Andrew Livingston from uh, the Director of Economics and Research at Vicente Cedarberg. Uh, thank you both so much. This has been really great. Thank you to Shay and the team for their production work. That makes us all sound so darn good. And Overclock Remix for the amazing tunes. Thank you to all of our sponsors for their generosity in keeping the mics and lights on. And of course, thank you, our awesome listeners. Please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes so that other cannabis nerds can tune in and stay current on the latest industry news. Most importantly, Marijuana Nation, take care of yourselves take care of each other. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Marijuana Today and that you have an incredible marijuana tomorrow. One take, Shay. One take.